Well, take your Bibles and uh, we'll begin tonight in Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> we'll read verses 3 to 14 as we, as we get going in the Westminster Confession. We're in chapter 3, uh, talking about, um, so Ephesians 1, before I confuse you. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, but we are in uh, the third chapter of uh, the Confession, thinking about God's decree, and tonight especially His decree uh, with reference to election uh, to salvation. This is uh, the word of the Lord, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. My soul longs for your salvation. Amen. Please be seated. Tonight we are returning to this discussion of God's great decree. And, um, and I think it's interesting how the Westminster Confession proceeds from here. Normally, when I talk to men, uh, when I debate with men about the doctrine of election and predestination, which we're discussing tonight, um, I usually start with sin. Because when you begin with the sin nature, and you understand that apart from the work of God, no man would come to Christ. When you begin there, then the doctrine of election sort of follows logically. Well, if it requires the work of the Spirit, and if all men don't respond to the gospel, then God must choose who responds and, and denies the others. But that's not where the confession begins. And the confession is not concerned with logic. <laughs> the confession is simply concerned to state what the Scriptures state. The men who arranged the confession of faith were concerned to exalt the glory of God and require men simply to deal with it. And so tonight we come to God's decree in reference to election and predestination. And what we, we wrestle with these doctrines, even, and I'll tell you, even in, in past years, I'll, I'll tell, tell it to you this way, even in 
as I've, as I've met with, with search committees, um, they will inevitably say, what are you going to do to grow the church? And I, uh, <laughs> because although we confess that God is sovereign and that he determined before the foundation of the world who would respond to the gospel, we still, in our, in our heart and our mind, we wrestle thinking, well, there's something that we can do to enhance the success of the gospel. And so we become ashamed of these doctrines, and sometimes we prefer to keep them secret. Well, what does it mean that you're Presbyterian? Well, it means we have elders and deacons. But certainly the doctrine of election is there. But Scripture on the other hand, speaks of these doctrines plainly, indicating that they are, are essential. These doctrines are essential to the vitality of every Christian man and woman and child. That's why the Scriptures reveal to the, them to us to the extent that they do. Certainly there's, there's a mystery, isn't there? We just a moment ago, I know whom I have believed it. Raise your hand if you've sung that since you were a child. I know whom I have believed it. Do you notice that most of that song is saying, I don't know this and I don't know that. I don't know this, but I do know whom I have believed it and that's who I have confidence. I don't know why I believed. I don't know why the Spirit worked in me the way that He did. Or how exactly. But I know that I believe in Christ and I trust Him. So there's mystery. But it's not all mystery. When Scripture begins, I want you to think about this. We were talking about this uh, at our men's breakfast yesterday morning, in part. We're thinking about when God came to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. And it's at that moment in Genesis 12 that there's a transition in the Scriptures. And God begins to reveal to us the means of salvation. And the first thing that we learn is that when God calls men to himself, it's his choice. Why, why, why Abram? Why indeed? We don't know. Abram wasn't seeking God. And in fact, in Genesis chapter 11, those who said, remember at the Tower of Babylon, those who said, let us go up to God, those were the men who, whom God judged. Now, of course, they, were, they had wicked intent. Abraham wasn't seeking God, wasn't worshiping God, wasn't walking with the Lord, wasn't a judge over the people. He was just a man. Abram received the covenant because God chose him. And so as you, were, as you get to Genesis chapter 12, one of the first principles that is revealed to you is that God is sovereign and he chooses whom he will show his grace to. In fact, as you go on in Genesis chapter 11, one of the first things that we see about Abram is that he, he told his wife to pretend she was his sister so he wouldn't get in trouble. <laughs> what a noble man. God chooses rascals. Well, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, paragraph 3, teaches us that God determines who inherits life and who inherits death. His motivation for both 
His motivation for both is his own glory. And Westminster Confession in chapter 3, paragraph 4, teaches us that predestination and foreordination are definite and unchangeable. And so tonight we'll work through just a couple of points and try to make this very, 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 very practical. But God, for his own glory, determines whom he will save and whom he will leave in his sins. The first thing that we notice in the confession is that God chooses life and death. And, and one, one thing that you may not have considered before, maybe you have, is that when God, in his electing decree, before the foundation of the earth, before he said, let there be light, God elected men to salvation and angels. Turn over with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. <clears throat> this decree of election applies to men and to angels. It doesn't go into as much depth about the angels, but certainly we read here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says there, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging and etc. So here, Paul mentions that there is such a thing as an elect angel. Now, what does that mean? Well, Scripture describes an angelic rebellion sometime in the creation week. You can go to Revelation chapter 12 and get a metaphor, uh, some figurative language about that rebellion. But sometime during creation week, Satan led an angelic rebellion in, in heaven. He was um, banished to the earth where he tempted Adam and Eve. But the angels... This is what the scriptures are teaching us. The angels who did not follow Satan in his rebellion were chosen by God. They are elect angels and therefore God by his power preserved them from falling. The angels who did follow Satan in rebellion were not chosen by God and they were given over, as it were, to carnal cravings, if we can call it that. These unholy angels are the demons who today wage war with diminishing power against Christ. So there are elect angels. God's decree of election applies to all beings, his angels and to men. And so we want to think about this to men as well because the scriptures go, go into depth on God's election of men. The election of men, though, it is distinct from the angels. Think about this for just a second. How is it distinct? Well, because the chosen angels did not fall. Do you, do you see that? When the rebellion happened, the way that God's decree of election functioned in the angelic rebellion is he kept certain angels from falling. He created all the angels at one time. Men, he created one and then another one, and then we gradually began to populate the earth. But angels he created all at once, and those whom he chose he preserved from falling. And so those elect angels, they don't need salvation because they are not corrupted by sin. 
But chosen men, on the other hand, chosen men are fallen. And God elects us unto salvation. He chooses men unto salvation. His choice of angels preserved them from falling. His choice of men brings us to salvation through Christ. And so what the confession teaches us is that these two men, these two groups of men, the elect and the non-elect, the elect are predestined to life, to everlasting life, and the non-elect are foreordained unto everlasting death. And so we want to think about that uh, and the nature of that for just a moment. Uh, the, the confession uses the words predestination and foreordination, predestination with reference to uh, elect men and foreordination to the, to the non-elect. I, I don't think there's a lot of difference between those words, but what, what the confession is driving at is you and I need to think about all men. God's decree from before the foundation of the earth encompassed every single man that would ever exist. That's very important. Because as we went back last, uh, last time I preached in the evening, we thought about the fact that there are no radical men on the earth. Every man is fulfilling God's purpose for his life. Both the righteous and the wicked. And we're going to think about that in just a second. But the confession, as it goes on, it describes God's predestinating uh, decree, His electing decree in these terms. Think about it this way. It is individual and it is unchangeable. It is individual and it is unchangeable. What, What does that mean? Well, it means that God has not chosen a certain race of men corporately. In other words, he did not choose all of Israel. In fact, as you work through redemptive history, that's one of the principles that comes out next, isn't it? Because Isaac had two sons, and they were twin boys. In other words, the Lord is taking away from you every possible excuse, Jacob and Esau. And before either one of them was born, God said what? Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And so we know that God's electing decree thinks about individual men. He hasn't elected Americans, as much as we might like to think that, or South Americans, or Jews. He has chosen men individually. So that when you go to, think about this, when you look at the apostles, what kind of men do you see? Well, they were from all kinds of political stripes, weren't they? You had Paul, who was a Pharisee, and they were the most committed and religiously zealous men. And then you had Simon, and he was a zealot. A different sect from the Pharisees. And then you had Matthew, and what was he? He was a turncoat tax collector. You see, God elects all kinds of different men. And as you work through the book of Acts, what do you find? Well, you've got leaders of the synagogue being converted. And then you've got uh, believing men and women who were in the upper echelon of, of Greek society coming to faith. God is no respecter of persons. And God's decree of election is certain and definite. The confession says the number of the elect cannot be increased or decreased. In the book of Revelation, this uh, truth is referred to as the 144,000. It's a definite number. God's elect 
I want to give you just a few ways to apply this. Um, In my background, I did not grow up understanding this doctrine. In fact, I, I started out very much opposed to this idea that God had determined a set number of men whom He would call to salvation. And over the summer of 2002, 2001, so the year before I got married, I read a little book called Revival and Revivalism. And it was talking about the first and second grade awakenings which took place in the late 1700s and the early 1800s in, in America. And you, maybe you're, you've heard of those before, and names like Jonathan Edwards uh, come to mind, and the division of the mainline Presbyterian church occurred in this time. But in the Second Great Awakening especially, do you know what men began to do? They began to say, if we do X, Y, and Z, we can bring revival. So they set up big tents. And they also put what they called the anxious bench down in front. And this is where the invitation system began. And all of this was, you understand, when when God is not sovereign and you make man the sovereign over his salvation, then you begin to think in terms of methods. How do we get men to respond? And you apply pressure. And you manipulate But when you come to understand that God sovereignly determines whom He will save, in my view, it takes a load off your shoulders because you know what? You don't have to be the most attractive person, which helps me a lot in your evangelism. You don't have to wear ripped jeans. You don't have to dress a certain way. You don't have to have movie night in the church. What do you do? Faithful to Christ, you preach the gospel. And you leave the result to Him. As we apply this to our own evangelistic efforts, it means the possibility for salvation, the possibility for salvation is not equally open to all men. It is not possible for all men to be saved. It is only possible for the men whom Christ has chosen before the foundation of the earth. In fact, it means that only God's elect will respond positively to the gospel and remain faithful to it. This is why Jesus in John 10 said, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And so as a church, how does this affect us as a church? Well, at the end of the day, numbers are meaningless, aren't they? You and I weren't consulted with at the beginning of creation. God didn't ask us whom we wanted to be saved or how big we wanted the church to be. God determines the size of His church. He determines the size of his body and the success of his gospel. And this is why we pray, isn't it? 
Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom to come. And when we make that petition to the Lord, we are saying, Lord, cause your kingdom to come. And we're asking him to make the gospel successful. Lord, make our evangelistic efforts successful. Help us to be faithful to you in evangelizing our community. Cause the hearts of men to become um, soft toward Christ. Let your spirit work. This is what we're asking him to do. We're asking him to give success. But you see, if you've been perusing Facebook recently, you've probably seen mega churches. Um, and their secret sensitive ways. And what do they do? Well, they have Super Mario Brothers Sunday. They have Cinderella Sunday. This goes back when Michelle and I were in California. We went back and forth past this little Methodist church. And every Sunday they had Disney Summer. And every sermon was based on some different Disney facet. And you see, what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, well, let's just get people in the door and then we'll get them with the gospel. Well, you, you only think that way if you think that somehow the success of the gospel is based on you. This is what the second great awakening got us. A focus on methods for Growth, and I will just add to that. I think one of the things that the one of the ways that the Second Great Awakening and the megachurch movement have perverted our thinking is that instead of thinking in terms of wanting to see the kingdom of Christ come in our community, wanting to see every man and woman and child discipled in the kingdom of Christ, we instead think of how many people are here on Sunday morning. Do you see the difference? If we focus on and pray for the coming of the kingdom in our community, that every single individual will profess faith in Christ, and we see as our mission not filling this sanctuary, but seeking out every single individual, no matter what side of the tracks they live on, that our call is to disciple them in the gospel, do you know that we would have to build 70 churches the size of First Summit? That's what we want. Not one big church, all big churches. God chooses life and death. And then secondly, we see from the confession that God chooses for his own glory. God chooses for his own glory. All things serve the glory of God. Turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Do you know why, if God has saved you, do you know why He has saved you? Do you know why, from before the foundation of the earth, He said, that one is mine? Let's read about it in Ephesians chapter 1. Look with me at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Remember this morning, we looked in, and the end of, of the work of Christ and the miraculous display of his power, at the end of that, the disciples in that boat, they worshiped him. This is the end result. His glory. God magnifies his own name. He magnifies his own glory in your salvation and calling you to himself. But do you know that he also magnifies his own glory in the condemnation of the wicked? Look with me at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, the first statement, the Lord has made everything for its purpose. There's not a molecule in the universe that God did not make specifically and design for a purpose. But Solomon goes on, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So when we think about the doctrine of election, we're not saying that God has called certain men to himself and he's given them a wonderful plan for their lives, but God has actually planned the life of all men. The, the writer of the Proverbs, he says that the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, and the purpose of the wicked man is the day of trouble. Romans chapter 9 Verses 22 and 23, which we've looked at several times on Wednesday nights now, <clears throat> refers to God as the great potter. Romans 9:22. what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? There's a great mystery that God created men who would rebel against him, blaspheme against him, cause trouble and persecute his people, and yet has endured them with much patience. These vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, verse 23, why? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. In other words, you know what, what, the, what Paul is saying there is that God has endured the wicked man, the man he intends never to save in order that he might manifest his glory to you. That little saying we have, but for the grace of God, there go I. That's Romans 9.23. In both the elect and the non-elect, God manifests his glory, and we're going to talk about that in detail in the next few weeks. But the chief purpose of this doctrine is not to cause quarrels. The chief purpose of this, gospel, of this is not to make men proud. Look what I know. I have special knowledge of the election of God. Uh, that happens. It's not to build us up. The chief purpose of this doctrine is to reserve all glory and honor to God alone. Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. 
For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. And just in case you missed that, he says it again. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God will not share glory with you or me. He will not let us say, Lord, look what, look what we did. We're a great team. We got that man to profess faith in Christ. Even about your own salvation. At the end of the day, if you understand this doctrine, what do you say? I don't know why I was made a guest at this feast. I don't know why I was made a guest. Romans 9.21 says that he took one lump of clay, one lump of clay, and out of that one lump, he made vessels of dishonor and vessels of honor. If, if, if God has determined that he should save you, it's not because you're a special person. I'm a special person. There's nothing in us. We are simply the Abrams walking in this world according to the lust of our flesh. And God, by his providence, Pulls us out. If we boast, we boast in Christ. That's the purpose of this doctrine. That's why it is written down for you so clearly in the Bible. This is why we tell others about it. Not so that we can say, look at this special knowledge that I have. This is why you should be a Presbyterian. But so that other men will learn to give glory to God alone. Let's pray. Our Father, if there is anything good in us, it comes from your hands. We have nothing by which we may come before you and say, look at me. This doctrine, O Lord, humbles us to the dust, and that's appropriate. For what are the nations in the scale? They're dust. As David prayed, he said, O Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him? I am a worm, less than a worm. Father, the fact that you would bestow grace upon us, the fact that you would be merciful to us, is overwhelming. That you would love us, that you would sing over us, is a mystery. Fathers, we think about this doctrine, we are reminded that we could just as easily be vessels for dishonor. You make the difference. We ask that you would help us, O oh Father, as you command us to make our calling and election sure. 
Not just to assume it because we had a good upbringing or we're in the right church or we sing the right hymns instead of those nasty old songs on an overhead projector. None of that stuff distinguishes the elect from the non-elect. Help us to make our calling and election sure, O Father, by glorifying You, by living according to Your law. We pray this in Jesus' name and for the sake of His glory. Amen.